the word of God from Daniel chapter 9. Daniel prays to God. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation, we'll just, right, of Jerusalem will be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty that they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing us on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord our God, by turning from our iniquities and paying attention, so, so the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for our own sake, do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, what is 
the deepest problem of the human condition. If you were to survey folks on the street, you'd get a variety of answers. Maybe food insecurity and malnutrition or poverty, climate change, illiteracy, government intrusion, population growth, social media, tech companies, wokeness or Christian nationalism, socialism or MAGA conservatism, privilege or lack of responsibility. What is the deepest problem of the human condition? Daniel 9 answers this question from God's perspective. So let's once again ask for God's help as we study Daniel 9. Lord Jesus, in a sermon that is looking at a prayer, we ask in prayer that you would, by your spirit, meet us in these moments and that you would preach the gospel to our hearts. Wounded hearts, angry hearts, rebellious hearts, fearful hearts, shameful hearts, doubting hearts, suffering hearts. May there be no question that you are the one preaching as you demonstrate your power. And may the Lord Jesus be what people remember. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Daniel 9 is about Darius, Daniel, and Jeremiah, and an interesting intercession. I'd encourage you to take the Bible under the seat in front of you and turn to page 791 so that you can see the text that was read for us, that Tim read for us. In order to understand the depth of Daniel 9 in its beauty, we need to do some significant Bible work this morning. So there'll be many other texts on the screens. I want you to stay focused on Daniel 9 in the Bible in front of you. So let's take five steps together in order to walk through this text to get to one main conclusion. And here are the five steps we will take. The context of Daniel 9, the calamity in Daniel 9, the cause of Daniel 9, the confession, and finally the secrets. Daniel 9. So first, the context of Daniel 9. We saw that right at the beginning, laid out in verses 1 through 10, in, or 1 through 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who is made king over the Chaldean kingdom. Chaldean, when you read Chaldean in the Bible, that's Babylonian. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. Remember Darius? I argued that his Median name is Darius and Cyrus is his Persian name. He's the king of the Medo-Persian empire that we met back in Daniel 5 as he defeated King Belshazzar. And of course... We have Daniel in these verses, whom we know well by now. 
But remember back in Daniel 1, he was described as flawless as a sacrificial lamb. Verse 4 and verse 15 of chapter 1. And as a descendant of Judah. If Daniel was 15 years old when he was deported to Babylon, when we come to our text this morning, he's approximately 80. He is a man who has lived in captivity almost his entire life. But he's also a man that's been given wisdom by God, having served as a counselor to foreign kings during those years. But we also have a third man mentioned in these verses. Did you catch who it was? His name is Jeremiah. We'll get to him in just a moment. What ties Darius, Daniel, and Jeremiah together? Well, let me tell you a story. Thousands of years earlier, the God Yahweh set his love upon a man named Abram, later called Abraham. And Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham and he promised to bless all the nations through Abraham. And he promised to give Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars. And he promised to give to his descendants a certain land, the land of Palestine. Well, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered 12 sons. And he became known by the name Israel, which means prince. Eventually, Jacob's family was forced to leave the promised land, almost in a sort of exile due to a famine, and they entered to, or journeyed to Egypt. One of them, Joseph, had been raised to second in power, and while in Egypt, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, died. But before he died, he prophesied that through his son Judah, a king would come. Fast forward hundreds of years, and Israel's, Jacob's descendants, were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. But Yahweh remembered his covenant. And he delivered them in a mighty way, making his fame and his power known throughout the entire world. And Yahweh entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel as the sovereign power who had delivered them. That covenant was known as the Mosaic Covenant. It was mediated through Moses. Now the covenant included blessings if Israel obeyed God, if Israel was faithful to it. But the covenant also included curses. You can read about the covenant blessings in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. But if the curses were ever enacted, that didn't mean that the covenant was broken it just meant that God was fulfilling his part of the covenant. That if Israel was unfaithful, God would remain faithful. You can read these curses in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68. And at the end of this covenant, Yahweh said to Israel through Moses these words. See today, I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands and his statutes and his ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and that your Lord may bless you where? In the land you are entering to possess. 
But if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to bow in worship to other gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land that you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God. Obey him and remain faithful to him. For he is your life. And he will prolong your days where? In the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now notice from this text that part of God's desire for the nation, the people of Israel, was to prolong their days in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember, where is Daniel right now? Is he in the land? No. He's in Babylon. Why? Well, that brings us to number two, the calamity in Daniel 8. The book of Chronicles narrates how the nation of Israel did not fulfill their part of the covenant. The chronicler repeats the history found in 1st and 2nd Kings, but then he adds a commentary of sorts at different points. So we read this in the next to last chapter of Chronicles, chapter 36 of 2nd Chronicles, verse 14. All the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the what? The Lord's temple that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But what happened? They kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So what did God do? God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or old women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of the Lord's temple, large and small, the treasures of the temple, the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Babylonians burned God's temple, they tore down Jerusalem's wall, they burned all its palaces, they destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon. And this fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. So Daniel is in Babylon due to the calamity God brought upon Israel in keeping with God's covenant to Israel. Why the calamity? Why is Israel in Babylon? Because God is faithful, even when Israel was unfaithful. Specifically, that text, 2 Chronicles 30, 36, tells us that they failed to allow the land of God to rest every seventh year. This was part of the covenant. You can read about it in Leviticus 25. 
And this is important, and we're going to return to it next week when we get to the second half of Daniel 9. 2 Chronicles 36 now brings us back to Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now back in Daniel 9, Daniel describes these consequences as a curse from God. Why does he do that? Because God's fulfilling the curses of the covenant. He also describes these things as a disaster or a calamity three times in verses 12 through 14 of Daniel 9. You can see it in your text. So the promised consequences came as curses and Yahweh takes responsibility for it. Isaiah 55 or 45 verse 7. Yahweh says this, I form light and I create darkness. I make success and I create disaster. I am the Lord who does all of these things. So the city called by God's name, Jerusalem, is ravaged. The people of God called by God's name, Israel, they are removed from the land and from the presence of God to bless. And God's wrath is poured out. Verse 16. That's the calamity of Daniel 9. So the context, the calamity. Third, the cause. The cause of Daniel 9. Well, the cause behind this text is actually deeper than the calamity itself. Do you remember in 2 Chronicles 36 that we just read a few moments ago, a beautiful temple was destroyed? You remember that? And do you remember back when we were talking about Jacob, he prophesied that through one of his sons, Judah, a king would come? Well, King Solomon was a descendant of Judah who had built that temple to worship Yahweh. And when he dedicated that temple, King Solomon prayed this in 1 Kings 8. When they, the people of Israel, sin against you, Yahweh, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and hand them over to the enemy and their captors deport them to the enemy's country, whether distant or nearby, And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and they repent and petition you in their captor's land, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have been wicked. And when they return to you with all of their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies, may you, Yahweh, hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and petition and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you and all their rebellions against you, for they are your people and your inheritance. So remember, Daniel is in Babylon due to the sin of God's people. Daniel knows 1 Kings, and he wants to meet the conditions that Solomon has just laid out for forgiveness from God 
to God's people. So the cause of the prayer in Daniel 9 is the sin of God's people. But there's an even deeper cause than that. It's not just the calamity. It's not just the sin that caused the calamity. It's something deeper. Specifically, he is studying the book of Jeremiah. And something within the text of Jeremiah stirs him to prayer. Well, what is that? Well, Jeremiah 25 verse 11 says this. This whole land, the land of Palestine, the land, Israel, and surrounding lands, they will become a desolate ruin. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for how long? For 70 years. When the 70 years are completed, Yahweh says, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. I will bring on that land all my words that I've spoken against it, all that is written in this book that Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So friends, back to Daniel 9. Daniel is sitting in Babylon. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. He comes across the reality that the punishment of God is going to be limited to 70 years. And he's calculating how long it's been since Israel was deported from the land since at least 605 BC. And he realizes something. The 70 years is almost up. And if God has been faithful to bring the curses of the covenant, then God's going to be faithful to fulfill all of his word. Yahweh has remained faithful by executing the curses, but the Jewish nation has not. And that brings us to number four, the confession in Daniel 9. Daniel has just discovered in his Bible that his people's sin isn't the end of the story. So Daniel, the descendant of Judah, described in terms of a sacrificial lamb without blemish in chapter 1, suffering the punishment for sins not his own, begins to intercede for the people of God. Did you see how many descriptors for sin Daniel uses in his prayer? He says that they have sinned, verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, and verse 15. This means that they have morally wronged or offended God. This is the idea of falling short of a standard, in this case, the covenant standard. He goes on and he says that they have done wrong, verse 5. This describes how they have done what is twisted, what is bent, what is distorted. They've not just fallen short of a standard, but they've deviated from it intentionally, bringing destructive harm on their community. Verse 5, also, they have acted wickedly. This is the antonym, the polar opposite of righteousness. Verse 5, also, they have rebelled. This describes a revolt, an attempt to nullify a covenant. They have turned aside, verse 5, from commands and rules. This describes apostasy. It is the opposite of steadfast obedience and integrity. Rather than fearing the Lord and turning away from evil, they have enjoyed evil and turned away from the Lord. They have committed treachery, verse 7. 
a conscious act of treason in breaking the covenant. Covenant people breaking faith with a sovereign with whom they are in covenant. And God is described as the victim of their treachery. They have transgressed, verse 11. This means moving outside or beyond the requirements of the law, the standard. They have committed iniquity, verse 13, which means they've deviated from the standard. They have twisted the standard by their misdeeds. And as, as if those eight words are not enough, Daniel negates two positive words to describe what their posture has been. Verse 6, he says, we have not listened. And verse 10, we have not heard. Or maybe your translation says, obeyed. God spoke. God gave revelation through his prophets over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And God's people would not listen. They would not hear. They would not obey. And before we think these ten descriptors are appropriate only for Israel in covenant with Yahweh, we need to pause. Because the Bible tells us that this rebellious posture towards God was passed down from Adam all of his descendants. Paul says in Romans 2 that when we do by nature what is written in the law of God, we demonstrate that God's law is actually written on our hearts and our conscience accuses us. Friends, Daniel 9 is not merely a confession of sin for the people of Israel. Daniel 9 describes you and it describes me. Maybe you've heard of Mark Rober. Mark is a YouTuber, but before he's making his millions on YouTube, he was a NASA engineer. And so he uses his engineering skills to get kids hooked on, well, videos of engineering and also engineering and to entertain adults like Liz and I. He has some really funny videos. Well, someone stole a package from Mark's front porch. And when he reported it to the police, the police refused to do anything. So he decided to hit back at the porch pirates. So for five or six years running, he made dozens of what he called glitter bombs. Non-lethal devices with video and audio recording. He packaged these glitter bombs in Bose headphones boxes and Apple product boxes and Oculus VR glass boxes. And when the porch pirates stole them and then opened the box, mechanisms were triggered and they would begin to experience, well, smells and sounds and lights and the world's finest glitter and all of it recorded, and all of it being streamed to where Mark could access the recording. It's quite humorous, in one of the videos you hear a porch pirate say over the loud sirens and countdown timer, it's a scam! Do you hear the irony in that? It's a scam, says the porch pirate, 
opening the package he stole off of someone else's porch. But doesn't that betray the human condition? The scammer expected to be scammed. Why? Because that's our human heart. We are so familiar dealing with the deception of our own heart that we expect it of others. As pro-scammers ourselves, we expect to be scammed by others. Friends, this is the deepest problem of the human condition, our rebellious heart. A rebellious heart posture towards God that refuses to understand him to be the sovereign to whom we owe allegiance, love, worship, and obedience. But as Daniel discovered, our rebellion is not the end of the story. Daniel understood this deepest of problems, identified with the rebellion of his own people, and he brings that rebellion in all of its multifaceted and disturbing dark nuances, and he just carries it straight to God. And he ends like this, verse 15. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned and acted wickedly. He is almost verbatim quoting what, Je- what Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. And here we arrive at number five, the secret in Daniel 9. Did you catch upon what basis Daniel pleads for God's forgiveness? Three things. God's righteous acts, God's gracious character, and God's glorious promises. First, Daniel knew he had a basis to pray for the removal of this mountain of rebellion Because of God's good and just activity in history. It would be in keeping with the righteous activity of God for God to forgive their sin. Second, he had a basis to pray in God's gracious character. He says, based on your abundant compassion. Maybe your translation reads, because of your great mercy. There is nothing within the human nature upon which Daniel is able to pray for 
and to plead for mercy. He has to plead for mercy based upon God's character, which is, by the way, greatly merciful. And third, he bases his request on God's glorious promises. He references the fact multiple times that God has set his name upon the city of Jerusalem and upon the people of Israel. And in Daniel's estimation, God should act so that his promises don't fail. What promises? Well, specifically the promises he gave to Jeremiah of a 70-year judgment. Now, you may have guessed that we're not going to cover verses 20 to 27 this week, or we'd be here for another while yet. We will tackle that next week. But the secret to verses 20 through 27 is actually found in verses 1 through 19. And the secret is this. A descendant of Judah, described in terms of a sacrificial lamb without blemish, a man who embodies wisdom, suffering in a foreign land for sins he did not commit, but identifying with his people in that sin, and interceding for them upon the basis of God's righteous acts, God's gracious character, and God's glorious promises. Friends, does that in any respect sound familiar? In answer to this man's intercession, God is going to reveal to Daniel in verses 20 to 27 that he has a plan to deal with sin and rebellion once and for all. And that plan is shocking. And guess what that plan is? There will be another descendant of Judah. A man described in terms of a sacrificial lamb without blemish and without spot. A man in whom dwells all the wisdom of God. A man who suffers in a foreign land for sins he did not commit, but who identifies with his own people in that sin, interceding in his suffering, fully embodying God's righteous acts, God's gracious character, and God's glorious promise. Friends, who is this person? Jesus Christ. Jesus, the greater, the better, the truer Daniel, who takes upon himself the calamity we deserve for our rebellious heart posture towards God. The one who himself pleads for our forgiveness with his own shed blood on a cross. Jesus, the one who secures for us a return from exile to the dwelling place of God. How is God going to deal with Israel's sin? How is God going to deal with your sin? How is the faithful God going to remove our sins so that we can be right with him and dwell with him for all of eternity, fulfilling his promise once and for all? God is going to cut off the deepest problem of the human condition by cutting off his dear son. And then God is going to guarantee the triumph of all of those who repent of their sin and rebellion and receive Jesus' death as their own by raising Jesus from the dead. After the suffering of calamity and destruction and judgment, life and forgiveness and hope. God is not merely interested with solving the deepest, the deep problems of humanity. He planned from eternity's past to solve the deepest problem of the human heart. 
And in so doing, he promises to solve all other problems of the human condition. Through the resurrected and reigning King Jesus in the new creation. Friends, there is Daniel 9. So what should we do with it? First, understand and practice confessing your sin before God as a glorious gift. It is a means to uniting you to the power and beauty of God's righteous acts, God's gracious character, and God's glorious promise through the person of Jesus. Confession is not an entrance into a self-induced purgatory until you have proven you can do better. Friends, you can't do enough. You can't promise enough. You can't be good enough to earn forgiveness. So stop trying. That's not faith. You can't do better than Jesus has done for you. You can't promise better than he has secured for you. You can't be as righteous as Jesus is. He is the only sinless being Sinless being who's ever walked this planet. He never deviated, diverted, or twisted God's law. He never fell short or went beyond God's command. He never sinned, did wrong, rebelled, committed treason, acted wickedly, transgressed, turned aside, or carried iniquity and guilt. He always listened, always heard, always obeyed the word of God. And friends, confession to God of the ways you have rebelled and you have sinned and have not listened is itself entrance into the blessed state of forgiveness based upon the perfect work of Jesus for you. So Christian, base your confession on who God is and what he has done, not on who you are or what you promise to do. Second, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, For a moment, would you just look into your own heart and consider the rebellion there? In what ways do you see yourself chafing against the idea of a righteous God who deserves and requires your love and allegiance and worship and obedience? What in your story and circumstances demonstrate you have failed to live up to that standard? Perhaps you feel crushed by the weight of your own sin. Perhaps the ten descriptors of sin in this prayer beat down upon your soul like a jackhammer on concrete. Friends, if that's the case, understand that this is God's grace to you. God describes his word as the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. In his grace, he's bringing conviction to you, opening your eyes to the earned shame of your guilt so that you might be drawn to the only place of wholeness, the person of Jesus. So won't you trust him today? Third, and finally, friends, remember that your sin and your suffering is not the end of the story. Many of us in this room have been through difficult trials. 
and some of you are still in the midst of a trial or you are recovering from one perhaps years ago. Suffering that feels like it's defining you or defining your marriage or your future. And sometimes that suffering leaves us in a state of confusion about God's ultimate plans for us. And some of you in this room feel like you are defined by your unique sin struggles. A text like this reminds us, reminds the people of God, that God has planned for and promised your eternal, abundant mercy in Christ. So run to him in your suffering and in your sin. Run to Jesus. Don't allow your circumstances to dictate the story you tell yourself. In the words of Jack Miller, the gospel reminds us, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dared believe. And cheer up. In Christ, you are more loved, forgiven, accepted, and embraced than you could possibly ever imagine. Friends, that is what Yahweh does. That is who Yahweh is. And that is what Yahweh has promised. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gracious kindness and mercy that you have given to us based upon your completed work on the cross. Father, thank you for planning an eternity past to not just deal with Israel's sin, to not just deal with some sin, but to deal with sin finally and forever. And Father, as we come upon this time of year where we will spend hours in celebration, in celebration rec remembering the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, help us not to forget that the incarnation is significant because of where it was leading to. The death of Christ on a cross for our sin and his resurrection from the grave so that we might have life. Father, thank you for your great mercy to us in Christ. Help us to believe it. Help us to live in light of it this week. We pray this in Jesus' name.